Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. And welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Frank Holland in for the Judge Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The next move for your money is tech earnings. They just continue to roll in. Our investment committee is standing by to break this whole thing down and joining us for the hour. Jim Labenthal, Anastasia Amoroso, and Rob Steichen. But first, let's get a check on the markets. Bit of a muted day today. We're seeing the Dow up uh, just over a half a percent. Same story for the S&P. The Nasdaq, the laggard, if you will, down about a quarter of a percent. The 10-year note at 3.44. Started the week about 8, 9 basis points higher, so not that much movement there. But we do want to point you to this. The move in First Republic. Shares halted after hitting another all-time low on new reporting from our own David Faber. We'll have more on that developing story coming up. You see shares of First Republic right now down, uh, actually down for the year, about 98%. But now we're going to switch over to big tech, and we begin with Amazon. Who else? Shares of Amazon down almost 4% after a pretty strong report, but it was the commentary on the call that really made the stock take a turn, Jim Labenthal. The comments about its cloud business taking a deeper decline this month, and it did actually during the quarter, but the rest of the report actually was pretty strong. Yeah, and, and I, I like the way you ended that opening there, which is that the rest of the report was pretty strong. I'm not sure I'm going to put a lot of faith in one month. I mean, there's certainly this whole year to date has been months that are up and down in the overall economy, which I look at Amazon as being reflective of. Now, in terms of overall worry about Amazon, I have to speak from the macroeconomic perspective because this is not one of my stocks. Um, what I was looking for yesterday, though, is what is Jassy going to say about the consumer? I know you want to talk about the cloud, but from a macroeconomic point of view, if everybody's so worried about a recession, then Jassy should be coming on and saying, holy smokes, guys, the consumer is hunkering down. He's not buying anything. He said the appropriate things. There's a lot of macroeconomic uncertainty, but he didn't say the consumer is dying. As for cloud, okay, Microsoft did pretty well. Alphabet did pretty well. If Amazon's having a bad month, I don't think we're supposed to uh, attribute a lot of significance to that. But, but isn't it the trend that he's talking about that has people concerned? I mean, it's a downward trend. We all knew cloud cloud spending revenues for these hyperscalers. It was slowing down. But to hear it slow down even more than we heard in the report, that doesn't concern you at all? No, I, I'm not going to say it doesn't concern me at all. It's a little bit too extreme. Of course, you pay attention to it. But what I've learned over the years is you have to s- separate out the signal from the noise. One month's worth of data, even one quarter's worth of data can be noise. There was a time a few quarters ago that Microsoft reported a quarter and everybody was worried about a- uh, Azure's growth slowing down. And everybody was really worried about it. And now we're not worried about Microsoft. We're not worried about Microsoft. It's hard to separate out whether a quarter is just a blip or a trend. Right now, this doesn't seem to me that Amazon is in some sort of peril of a downward trend. So, Anastasia, how do you see this report? I mean, we can talk about the cloud, but it also has a huge, obviously, e-commerce business Mm -hmm. and also an ad spending business. We don't talk about that often. I know other stocks like a FedEx UPS might be seen as a bellwether, but this is a very dynamic company. What did you make of the report? 
Well, first of all, big tech delivered. We need to acknowledge that. And you know, I love to see the turnaround in the Nasdaq futures, for example, this morning. And it delivered on several fronts. You know, first of all, the consumer, as you say, as Jim said, the consumer is not falling apart. And in fact, when we look at the health of the balance sheets, the unemployment rate, we still see a very solid consumer. So that's helping the e-commerce business with the fact that Meta and Google also delivered and the digital ad business is actually starting to perk up. I mean, a couple of quarters ago, we were looking for maybe zero percent growth in ad spending. Now, if you look at several quarters from now, we're actually looking to pick up five, seven, maybe even 10 percent. So that I see that as a positive. So when I look at a report like Amazon, you know, I actually focus on the consumer as the as the economy is healthy. When it comes to the cloud, you know, look, you have a couple of quarters of deceleration. I think that's normal. But the fact is we're all talking about artificial intelligence. And you cannot do artificial intelligence without moving your workloads to the cloud. If you're Amazon, you, guess what you're going to offer as part of your cloud services? You're going to offer artificial intelligence, machine learning tools. So I think this might be somewhat of a cyclical deceleration that might play out for a couple of quarters, but the longer term trend is still very positive for cloud. All right, Rob Seachin, over to you. I mean, what did you make of this report? I think Anastasia is bringing up a good point. Cloud and AI, they kind of go hand in hand, but we didn't get that big head headline AI announcement out of Amazon that I think a lot of analysts and maybe even investors were anticipating. Yeah, so we don't own the stock like Jim, razor thin margins, not a lot of cash flow, and it's expensive. And when you have a slight miss or negative guidance, you see what happens to the stock price. And so, the negative guidance came from the fact that a business that was growing at 40% per year not too long ago has now decelerated to a much slower growth rate than some of their peers. And so you have a situation where uh, on a relative basis, you have an expensive stock, you have some negative guidance and the stock price reacts accordingly. So Rob, I want to push back on you for a second. We're looking at the forward PE on the, on the TV right now, 70 times times, 75 times forward earnings. But if there was a big headline AI announcement, is this stock still expensive? Well, let me say that, yes, it's still expensive. <laughs> from, from a fundamental standpoint, it is absolutely expensive. But that doesn't mean that AI, you see some of the enthusiasm around AI at Microsoft, for example, and it is expensive relative to its history, right? But we think that momentum can continue because of some of the announcements that they've made. At some point, you get the lunatic fringe of, uh, of being able to justify higher and higher valuations. And it can happen, but the reality of it is, is if there's a miss, if there's negative guidance, you're incredibly exposed to that. And you have to ask yourself, is that a risk worth taking? And it's why we exited the position, along with a, a lot of pull forward of demand across the pandemic timeframe. All right, just to Rob Seachin's point, again, Amazon trading at 75 times, uh, Microsoft at 30 times. Agree it's expensive? I, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, always the supposition is that they could turn off some of the projects that they're doing. They could cut down the expenses and, and the margins would get better. That's always the reason for the higher uh, earnings multiple. But it's not a favorite of mine for that reason. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about big tech and big tech earnings. Let's bring in CNBC technology correspondent Steve Kovac back over there at HQ. Hey, Steve. 
Yeah, Frank, let's go over these big themes we learned out of the reports from Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, and Amazon last night. Now, I know we're talking about cloud. Well, deceleration and optimization were the buzzwords. And in Amazon's case, like we were saying, that commentary from the CFO on the call that growth hasn't stabilized yet set those shares tumbling into the red after an initial pop after the report crossed the wires. Now, it's a different story over from Microsoft's Azure Cloud optimism around AI, which is just really another product on the cloud that Microsoft is poised to sell. Growth is still decelerating there, but the sentiment is AI gives Microsoft an opportunity to eat into Amazon's lead in market share. And then over to advertising, we saw weakness from the smaller companies like Snap and Pinterest last night, but the giants showing resilience, meta beating expectations there, and Amazon continues to show major progress. Ad sales were softer for Google, but it wasn't a complete disaster. And of course, everyone talking about AI and how that can lead to growth. Microsoft clearly ahead there with the slew of AI products announced so far this year and more to come. Google promising more AI to come as well, but no specifics. By the way, AI was mentioned 52 times in Alphabet's call, 36 times on Microsoft's, 57 times on Meta. Amazon, though, just 12 mentions. Now, looking ahead, we got one more big name coming, of course. Apple reporting next Thursday, May 4th. Sales expected to fall year over year for the second quarter in a row. And lots of headwinds, including the drop in PC sales. Well, that's bad for Mac and iPad businesses. But iPhone holding firm and still questions if demand carried over from the holiday quarter. Then again, China's reopening could be a big boost there. And foreign exchange is getting better for Apple as the dollar weakens. I'll be right there live from Cupertino, by the way, Frank. So we'll have all the results then. So, Steve, I want to ask you, I mean, you were just kind of breaking down these big tech earnings. Is there anything that we can get from either Microsoft or Amazon that can give us some insight on what to expect from Apple? Because, you know, they have ad businesses, they have device businesses. They're not exactly comparable apples to apples, no pun intended. Um, But they do have similar business. Yeah. And I mean, of course, Apple, the iPhone is the most important product and the biggest revenue generator. But look. OE, Windows OEM, that's the licensing uh, revenue that Microsoft connect, uh, collects from uh, PC makers, that fell off a cliff again. And that's just another sign the PC market is incredibly weak. We saw Intel's results last night on that. And that smells pretty uh, bad news for the Mac business and the iPad business. Uh, we're still, the iPhone business though, Frank, is the real big question and how, how resilient that was, especially with China reopening. Yeah, a lot of questions there. Steve, by the way, I like how you just did your own promo there, live in Cupertino next week. Steve Kovac, thank you very much. Thanks. All right, so let's toss this one around. I mean, you kind of heard Steve Kovac set up right there, what to expect from Apple. What do you expect? Um, First off, I think we should note that this year's earnings for Apple are projected to be lower than last year's earnings. And that's emblematic not only of Apple, I think, but the market overall, which is to say that expectations, whether it's Apple, the market, the economy, have been overly negative. That's why this earnings season has been better than expected. So I think you're actually set up for earnings to not be great on an absolute sense, but better than expectations and move higher. And that's what we've seen, again, this earnings season overall. I do want to point something out, though. You know, we went into this week really focused on uh, large cap tech earnings, and we'll do that again next week. But that's not where the growth in earnings this quarter has come from. I mean, we've had a fabulous quarter. 79% of companies have beat. But the, the biggest beats, both in terms of the frequency within industry and the size, has come from energy, materials, industrials. Actually, technology 
technology has, has about two-thirds of companies in technology have beat estimates versus 79% for the S&P 500 overall. So yes, we're focused on tech earnings, but that's actually not what the driver of earnings growth is coming from. You know, probably important to note, you do also own Apple. Yes. One other area you were concerned about was China. Yes, so China, and Steve obviously mentioned that, and China is gonna cut both on supply and demand. But again, this speaks to expectations, I think, overall in the world being too negative. China is reopening, okay? That's going to help supply. That's going to help demand. I don't think that's reflected either in Apple's share price or the market overall. You know, funny you should say that. And Seachin, I'm going to come over to you. I actually just got something from a company called China Beige Book. They have a full report coming out tomorrow. I'm going to give halftime just a, a little sneak peek. They basically say that the revenge spending has, is, has now materialized in April, and it's a pretty dramatic break from what we saw before, and there's also a lot of travel ahead of the May Day holiday. Uh, Rob, you also own Apple. What's your take on what, you, uh, what we heard from Steve and what you expect from the report coming up next week? Well, I, as always, I expect Apple to show that they have a very resilient business model. They're going to generate modest mid-single mid uh, digit top-line growth. Um, they're going to maintain their profitability in a tough macro environment, giving their pricing power and ability to navigate supply chain disruptions. But, you know, the valuation, while down from its peak at 35 times in 21 and in line with its five year average, is still 28 times next year's earnings. And, you know, I think you the reason we're neutral relative to the index is I think there's some risk to that. And so, um, while we're not underweight, we're neutral because Apple has proven to be incredibly strong in managing their business. Um, you know, I think it's tough to be overweight right now. So tough to be overweight. You feel like it's a bit extended. It's trading just about in line with the Nasdaq right now. But also, they've really opened up a new growth market, India. Um, are, you, are you seeing some potential for exponential growth there? I mean, India is, is generally a, a low-cost uh, mobile phone market, but with Apple opening stores there, Tim Cook paying a visit, kind of meeting. I've heard people call him a CEO by day, diplomat by night. Is that a real big potential for Apple to not only grow market share, but become perhaps the preferred brand? Well, sure it is. You have to take a wait and see approach there. You have to look at adoption. But obviously, anytime you have that type of optionality, it has the potential to be positive for the underlying business. And I think this is a company that has one of the most uh, attractive products in the world in the iPhone. So anytime you open a new market, you get adoption. I think that's going to be a, a possible uh, boon for them. All right, looking at Apple shares up a quarter of a percent. Anastasia, what's your take? I mean, obviously, it's a huge report coming up next week. It is. I mean, look, we got four, four, four this week. We got all the big, you know, four big tech companies that delivered. You know, we do hope that Apple can as well. But maybe I'm a little bit more mixed on the opportunity set because while the China revenge spending rebound is great, I'm not so sure that it's particularly great for the goods sector. I think if U.S. experience suggests something, it's prioritizing leisure, hospitality, travel. And if you look at the mobility numbers in China, meaning travel mobility, it has picked up sharply. So I have a sense that I, I think that's what consumers are prioritizing. But having said that, if the, you know, the big conversation in the markets today has been, well, this has been a very narrow market with the big tech companies that are leading, but the fact that they are still beating and delivering, uh, it, it, that to me suggests that that can actually spread to the rest of the ecosystem. If you think about, you know, digital ad spend, for example, you've got Google and you've got Meta, they account for 48% of digital spend. You know, so that's a huge chunk. And if that part of the business is okay, that's great news, perhaps, for the 
rest. If you think about you know, the hyperscale CapEx on cloud, the fact that for the big three, that's still growing at 20% year over year, that's great for the ecosystem as well and for the semiconductors and the networking equipment that's involved in that. So that's how I'm looking at this. You know, perhaps it's not the big tech falling apart you know, after the outperformance, but the rest of the ecosystem that has a chance to catch up. I think you might be echoing something we got from uh, Bank of America's Michael Hartnett saying that surging big tech uh, is, you know, obviously good for the market, but narrow breadth is also uh, often dangerous and the largest, biggest tech inflow since November of 2022. So um, certainly something to watch. We're seeing a lot of those names at the top, the big tech names, and also like a McDonald's hitting 52-week highs, but other areas of the market not seeing that same move. All right, time now to bring in our halftime headliner. We're talking Kevin Simpson, founder of Capital Wealth Planning. He manages the firm's five-star fund. And Kevin, you're adding protection on one of your big tech stocks. Well, you guys did a great job breaking down the tech earnings, especially Microsoft. And, and we look at these opportunities, these surges, and, and believe me, we love the name, but sometimes these multiples get stretched. So we're not gonna try to time in and out of the position. But writing covered calls is a great way for viewers, for investors to hedge a position that may have taken you know, a, a meteoric run. And, and certainly Microsoft could be in that category. They had great earnings two days ago, another surging number yesterday in terms of performance. So we wrote covered calls yesterday on Microsoft. We wrote $320 calls. And could it get there? I mean, you mentioned AI, and it seems like everybody's pulse skips a beat. But I think this is an opportunity where trees don't grow to the sky. So if we can put a little bit of a hedge out there, if you own a position that's getting too much of an overweight within your portfolio, not a bad idea to trim into strength. But it's not a judgment on, on the name by any means, Frank. We're just trying to read the room. All right. So as you're reading the room, what areas are you looking at? I mean, obviously, you know, we're talking about your covered calls when it comes to big tech, but what other areas are you looking at? Because we've seen such a really resilient U.S. consumer. They just continue to spend. Yeah, it's, it's, you can't discount the resiliency, not just of the American consumer, but of the stock market in general. And, and granted, it might be isolated with a few big name stocks that are really pulling up the indices. But look at the move that we saw yesterday. I mean, everyone on Wall Street to a person is so negative. So many people that sit on the desk there during the week are so negative. Not you, Jim, but there's, there's lots of negativity. And when you see this type of market move to the upside, you have to respect that resiliency. You mentioned McDonald's in the introduction a second ago. I mean, here's a stock again at 52-week highs, really with a stretch multiple, very similar to, to the Microsoft conversation. Another name that we've been trimming, straight up trimming, and writing covered calls against. Now, a couple things that we did add to this week, Frank, one of which may sound somewhat counterintuitive, but lays, maybe, maybe leans on the strength of the consumer is Home Depot. And I realize that naming a cyclical position in light of what could become a recession may seem a little counterintuitive, but it was 10% down off of its highs in just a few short days. And we always look at these things not over a three to six month period, but a three to six year period. This is a stock that we're building the position out. We've owned it for a long time off and on. And, and if we see pullbacks, which we certainly can and probably will over the summer, we'll continue to add to it. Same thing with Merck, resiliency within the healthcare space, two and a half percent dividend, looking for opportunity sets, again, finesse trades, not, not big major moves, but just taking advantage of what the landscape is giving us and, and, and trying to make the best decisions here in the short term to benefit us in the long term. Hey, Kev, one more question. You're about 15% cash right now. Why not just put that in a short term bond? I'm looking at the two year yield above 4% right now. Should I go into a two year? I'm asking, you're the five-star fund manager. 
Well, here's the problem. We go into a two-year, you can rest assured, Murphy's Law is sitting on my shoulder that the market will capitulate and go to the upside one year in and we'll miss a big run to the bull market. So uh, as attractive as those yields are, I, I think you're always going to do better off owning companies in the stock market that pay dividends, that increase dividends. And when you factor in where inflation is right now, I know we're all excited that it's coming down, but it's still a far cry from the Fed's 2% target. And, and when you factor in inflation, that, that yield doesn't look quite as attractive over a two-year period. Now, for financial advisors who are allocating for clients, by all means, it's wonderful to get a yield considering the past 12 years where we've seen uh, bond markets with almost barely a pulse. But for me, uh, you know, give me stocks all day long. All right, there we go. Kevin Simpson, appreciate the insight. We were just talking Eagles earlier today. Big day for the Eagles, man. But we got to switch gears. We got to talk, talk a little money. I don't, we don't want to get a lot of New Yorkers around here. We don't want to get them upset. Um, Jim, what do, what do you think about Kevin's thesis here? Also, going into Home Depot right now. Well, look, I mean, there's a reason he called me out. We think alike. And it doesn't mean that we're negative on, on Microsoft, you know, and big cap techs. He owns the shares and he hedges them by uh, selling calls. I own the shares and I hedge them by being uh, underweight versus the market overall. Where he, he and I agree is that there should be greater breadth in this market. And that's something you mentioned just a few minutes ago. So we like to lean in, he and I, in areas that the rest of the world isn't necessarily saying are intuitive, like home. Depot. Guess what? You know, rates are coming down. Uh, mortgage rates haven't been as high as seven for quite some time. And as they come down, you see mortgage applications pick up. People still need to buy homes. Right. They're going to refurbish them. Home Depot is a great call. But really what I like about Kevin is he's broad. He's not just focused on FANG, which, look, I'm in it, but I'm underweighted. I kind of think it's a, a wuss way of investing. I mean, take have, have some guts, man. Okay. Take something counterintuitive into your portfolio. Jim Liebenthal calling people out. Anastasia, I saw you taking notes, especially when he said that trees don't grow to the sky. <laughs> well, they don't. And I was looking at the performance of the big tech names. And if you look at, you know, kind of the relative strength indicators, they are approaching over, you know, overbought territories for, you know, some of these companies. So what resonated with me is writing calls on some of the names that have run up a lot. And by the way, you don't necessarily want to do that on the broad index. You don't want to do that on every single stock, because if you look at the volatility, the volatility has come down a lot. And over the last five years, for example, on Q QQQs, it's in the 39th percentile. So it's not that attractive, for example, to write, write that covered call. But if you can select some of the big tech names or perhaps smaller tech companies, and if you can get that volatility, implied volatility, that's let's say 50 percentile or higher over the last five years, I think that starts to make sense. So I would selectively think about writing those calls on the tech names. All right, Rob, over to you. Uh, Rob, also, was Kevin talking about you when he talked about people bringing negativity to the investment committee? Was that you? Was he calling out? He, he might have been, but remember, we're, we're negative, but we're invested. We own a lot of these names that we think are terrific. So you can be kind of cautious on markets. I wouldn't call us negative, cautious on markets. And the reason we're cautious is because the easy part is over. You look at the tech sector, it's trades at 25 forward, times forward PE. Uh, the 10 year average is 19. Pre pandemic, we were at 22. And that's when we had the Fed aggressively easing policy. Um, you know, you, you have a very difficult environment right now because of valuation in certain places. And I think what I like about what Kevin said is he's looking where valuation is high, but momentum is still strong, like a Microsoft, like a McDonald's. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to write some covered calls against those because I'm gonna get some downside protection out of that if stocks trade off. And by the way, I'm gonna get a little premium 
in my pocket if we keep going. That is what PMs have to do. Now, when I think about, you know, tech, not all tech is created equal. And I know it trades in the communication services, but Meta is a stock we picked at year end because of fundamentals, because of drastically and dramatically changing uh, fundamentals, where they where they were able to outperform expectation driven by a combination of a focus on their core business, right, and a reacceleration in operational efficiency as a result. Um, ad spending coming back gave them huge operating leverage. And that's allowing the efficiency theme to play out. But remember, it was a cheap stock. So with Microsoft, they have to exclude, execute flawlessly, flawlessly. Right. Whereas there's a lot more room and an easier part to jump over when you think of that. So, again, two names we own, a little bit of a different philosophy as price gets uh, elevated in each name. All right, Rob, Jim Leventhal, he's in my ear. He, I, want, he wants to throw something on this. I have to give compliments to Rob because I totally panned his meta pick Did at you? the Stock Summit. Yeah, and I'm yeah. going to be eating crow on this for a while, so I better start now. Great pick on meta, Rob. Yeah, you're eating crow to the tune of a, a 90% gain <laughs> year to date. <laughs> Why don't we spread this out over time? You don't have to, like, you don't have to give me a feast right now. All right. <laughs> uh, good call by Rob Seachin. All right, coming up, we got some new developments on a stock that's going a different direction. We're talking First Republic. We mentioned it at the top of the show. That stock's hit another all-time low. That stock down more than 90% year-to-date. Started the week at $4.99 a share, now at $3.74 a share. Plus, we're going to talk about regulators weighing in on the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, what that all means for your money. That's coming up next, right here on Halftime. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back to Halftime. We're following new developments on First Republic. Sources telling our David Faber today the most likely outcome for the batter bank is to be taken into FDIC receivership. Shares tumbling on those headlines after being halted earlier in the session. 
can see now down about 40%. And just within the last hour, the Federal Reserve released its report on the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, is here with those details. Steve. Yeah, Frank, the Fed's report on the failure of Silicon Valley Bank takes aim directly at the bank's management and the Fed's own bank supervisors, but it also suggests new regulations are going to be needed for mid-sized banks like SVB. The report said that SVB was a textbook case of mismanagement. It failed to manage basic interest rate and liquidity risk, and that the board of directors failed to oversee senior leadership. From the Fed's standpoint, Fed supervisors failed to take forceful enough action. They missed risk created by SVB's growth, uh, including the fact that before the bank failed, it could have been downgraded or should have been downgraded, even though the downgrade was discussion began in November. It demonstrates the report said a weakness in regulation and supervision, specifically regulatory standards that are too low. Uh, Fed's uh, B- Vice Chair for Bank Supervision, Michael Barr, saying we need to develop a culture that empowers supervisors to act in the face of uncertainty. In the case of SVB, supervisors delayed action to gather more evidence, even as weaknesses were clear and growing. A couple other things. The report said it would have to figure out how do you respond or what kind of capital levels are the right ones in a world where social media technology and a concentrated deposit base could may have fundamentally changed the speed of bank runs, but overall, from an investment point of view, I'd say it makes clear some of the relaxations to regulatory standards from 2019 now likely to be rolled back. Frank? All right, Steve, thank you very much. Uh, Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Now we want to turn to the ongoing, uh, actually, despite the ongoing banking system turmoil, Wall Street analysts, they're still very bullish on that space. Leslie Picker is following the money on that story. Leslie, over to you. Hey, Frank, I guess bullish relative to the pressure that especially regional bank stocks have been under. Zion's, Comerica, U.S. Bank Corp. and Key Corp. each trading at least 23 percent below the average price targets that analysts have projected for those names. That suggests the street may see potential upside after 1Q earnings reports pressured many of the regional names. However, the story is fast moving. Of course, the 2024 EPS projections continue to be revised downward for many of those regional names as the cost of keeping depositors remains elevated and the risk of contagion from the March tremors remains front and center. Wall Street analysts haven't been able to slash their targets fast enough for First Republic. The average target price is still 35.45. That is about 10 times higher than where the stock is currently trading at 386 right now. Uh, and that had been higher earlier this morning. It went back into free fall on our David Faber's report that you mentioned about likely landing in an FDIC receivership. Now, First Republic, the worst performer on the S&P year to date and contributing to financial spot as the biggest sector laggard so far this year, Frank. All right, our Leslie Picker. Leslie, thank you very much. Let's trade the financials. Rob, you're actually selling Blackstone and you're adding more J.P. Morgan. Correct. We sold some Blackstone last month. We exited the position this month. It still has an attractive dividend, um, but overall valuation, sentiment, earnings growth appear to be um, at risk or slowing. We're neutral to the name, and this just goes in line with our theme to focus on quality. So we're adding to J.P. Morgan. The new weight in J.P. Morgan is over 6% for us. It's one of our larger portfolio positions, and we think it's going to be a beneficiary of everything that you're seeing happen in some of the regional banking uh, ecosystem. 
Um, so one of the larger, more diversified banks and valuations attractive as is price to book. So Rob, spell that out for me. What's the, ben- what's the benefit for JP Morgan? Is that deposits migrating? It's deposits migrating. That's, that's, that's one of the principal benefits. And the other benefit is what they have to pay for those deposits, right? So there's, there's a little, if you're a bank that's deemed to be under a little stress, you have to pay more to attract deposits, which impacts your net interest margin. All right. Anastasia, I, I see you, you're raising your hand right there. Looking at the KRE, the regional bank ETF today, by the way, up just about 2%. Yeah, it's nice that it's up today, but obviously if you look at the performance or lack thereof, it's been a really tough rebound to have. And the reason is, it's interesting that Leslie mentioned that some analysts are bullish on the names, but the reality is if you look at the hedge fund positioning, for example, the banking sector, those, I mean, they're very severe underweight positions. And what I don't see is a catalyst to remove those underweights, because the reality is, as all the banks grapple with the potential for deposit flows, they're trying to raise their cost of funds, and at the same time, they're not loaning out out as many of those deposits as they previously would. So the chart that really got me thinking a, a lot in the last week is you've got deposit outflows from the small banks and you've got a huge crash in net new lending from the small bank for small regional banks. So bad outcome for net interest margins, bad outcome for loan growth, and therefore it's kind of not enough to get excited for me uh, right. despite the valuation. So, Jim, you have a, a lot of financials exposure. You also own J.P. Morgan, the KRE. We are just talking about it. Goldman and Citi. Yeah, and so of those names, obviously, Goldman, Citi, J.P. Morgan are at the top of the food chain. Uh, I have a very small position in the KRE, the regional bank ETF. Um, and I started that after Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, I'm down on it about 6%. But your, your point, Anastasia, is very well made. There is no near-term catalyst to get these things going again. This is more of a long-term investment. And here's what the thesis is. There's a tug-of-war now between earnings, which are absolutely going down. You're 100% right. I mean, it's costs of financing, the deposits. It's regulatory costs that are going up. But these things have been knocked down so hard that there are a lot of them trading below book value, some of them trading below tangible book value, which seems to imply that there's going to be balance sheet impairment coming that I don't think necessarily is going to happen. I mean, let's face it, the 10-year Treasury is now, what, about 100 basis points right. below where it was at its peak about a month and a half ago. That takes some of that pressure off of the balance sheet. It's a tug-of-war between earnings and book value. And I think at this price, which is roughly where I entered it, I think the balance over the long term is in favor of appreciation. I mean, that's such a great point because you're right, the 10-year yields are a lot lower today, so a lot of the potential mark-to-market adjustment that needed to happen has already been taken, so you might actually end up with a positive marks going forward. I like, however, um, you know, looking elsewhere in the capital stack and looking to preferreds, for example, for whether it's some of the regionals, whether it's the larger banks, where if I can get seven, you know, six or seven, or maybe a higher percent yield, that's the way I would think about that. All right, certainly something to talk about there. But straight ahead, we got to switch gears. Our chart of the day in the oil space. The committee breaks down the move. That's when halftime returns right after this break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
Welcome back to Halftime. I'm Christina Parts Nevels, and here's our CNBC News update at this hour. Richard Sharp, the chairman of BBC, quit today after he failed to disclose a potential conflict of interest. A report revealed that Sharp helped arrange a loan for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson in 2021, weeks before he was appointed to the BBC Post on the government's recommendation. Sharp said he was quitting to, quote, prioritize the interests of the BBC after making an inadvertent breach of the rules. A bill looking to ban abortion after six weeks failed to make it past the Nebraska legislature. Despite support from Republican Governor Jim Pillen, that marks the second year an effort to restrict abortion access in the state has failed. Nebraska currently bans abortions after the 20th week of pregnancy, a law that has been in place since 2010. And Ed Sheeran pulled out his guitar yesterday as the copyright trial over Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On continued. The heirs of Ed Townsend, Gaye's co-writer, sued Sheeran on claims that his hit 2014 song, Thinking Out Loud, has striking similarities to Gaye's 1973 classic. Sheeran performed to display his songwriting process to the entire courtroom. Free show. Frank? Yeah, a little drama there. I think there was a similar case with, uh, I think, Robin Thicke's song, another Marvin Gaye song. Oh, yeah, that's true. But didn't Robin Thicke lose? I'm pretty sure he lost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you hear the two songs together, pretty much the same song. Yeah. All right, we got to leave it there. Christina Partzanevelis, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, time now for our chart of the day. ExxonMobil higher on earnings. The company reporting a beat on the top and the bottom lines. Jim, you own this one. Uh, yeah, and I'm very comfortable with it. I know oil's been all over the place, and there should be some tracking between ExxonMobil and oil. Um, but overall, first off, I think oil's going to go higher. Here's why. You know, we didn't get any strategic petroleum reserve refill in the last few months. I think that had to do with the debt ceiling. I'm going to come back to ExxonMobil in a second. Let, let, give me a little <laughs> runway here. Give me a little runway? Okay. Um, you know, I think the debt ceiling just basically meant the money wasn't there to spend a couple of tens of billions of dollars on refilling the SPR. Let's assume we get the debt ceiling resolved. They're going to start refilling the SPR. So oil, which went higher when the OPEC cuts were announced, now is just round trip back, is likely to go higher. you got China demand picking up. And by the way, I think the U.S. economy is doing a heck of a lot better than people are giving credit for. All this says to me, energy prices are going higher. ExxonMobil is going to be a direct beneficiary. On top of that, really forgiving valuation, great dividend yield. I'm not sure what there is to not like here, but maybe Rob or Anastasia will disabuse me of my my notion. I want to hit on one of your points. So you talk about those OPEC cuts. So after they cut oil 80 bucks a barrel, now it's 75 bucks a barrel. That's, uh, you know, almost a month after the cut. And see, you're overweight on energy, even with this going on. So, so kind of spell this one out to me. Why are you still overweight on energy? You own a couple companies in this space. What are you so bullish about? So we view it as a hedge to geopolitical risk, which is why we remain overweight. And let's remember the demand from China thus far has underwhelmed. But to Jim's point, that that can change. And it's summer driving season. And we are expecting to see inventory drawdowns by the time we hit summer. So the fundamental backdrop still remains intact for higher for the possibility of higher energy prices, as well as the fact that these stocks are not particularly expensive. And most investors, if you just look at the way the prices have acted recently, have left their positions here. So that is a setup, light positioning, and a possible inventory and price shock going in the summer are the exact hedges you want in place from a portfolio construction standpoint. So, Anastasia, what's your take on the energy sector right now? And 
again, I mean, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out why isn't oil popping after those production cuts actually down five bucks a barrel? Yeah, look, I agree with the consensus here. I think there's nothing wrong with demand. Uh, demand in the U.S. for mobility is still very strong, and demand for mobility in China is picking up. So I, I still see that as a constructive environment. And I think OPEC very much wants to keep oil prices elevated. So the reason why they cut is because they want to flip the market back into the deficit, and I think they will over the summertime. So to me, that supports oil around these levels or higher, and it's great for Exxon, Chevron, and the rest of the XLE. Yeah, we're seeing oil. We're seeing oil up more than 2% on the back of that Chevron and Exxon uh, uh, quarterly earnings reports. All right, coming up next, our Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. Halftime, back right after this. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. So, Mike, we've been talking big tech, but you're actually looking at small caps. Looking at small caps, outperforming today, and really it's one of the problem areas of the market. You've been able to complain about the fact that small stocks have actually been on the verge of breaking down. Also, the banks uh, have also gotten some relief today. So if those were the two big worry points coming in, at least for today, um, you've had fewer reasons incrementally to be concerned about them. Uh, It doesn't mean it's going to last. We probably have some month-end, maybe upside bias to the overall market today. But this is the second day in a row where the rally's been relatively broad. It has not just been a couple of stocks. And big picture, did we learn anything this week, this month? I think if you really thought that the consumer was falling apart quickly, that, um, that the economy was, was about to buckle into recession, uh, at the same time we might have this kind of runaway credit contraction, you didn't get a lot of confirmation this week. In fact, if anything, you got pushback on those views. And I think that's why the market is held together as well as it has. It's tenuous. Uh, I'm going to admit that it still has been a pretty narrow rally. And nothing says we know how the market's going to absorb what the Fed does next week. But I do think that it makes sense. We're here kind of in a neutral spot heading into Fed week. Yeah, to your point, a lot of consumer names hitting a a 52-week higher. Talking Chipotle, McDonald's, O'Reilly, General Mills. The winners keep winning. Uh, those are the kind of acknowledged uh, sort of quality names within those groups. And that has been a theme. Uh, and, you know, familiar everyday stocks that do well. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of uh, keeping investor sentiment from getting even more worried than it has been. All right. Mike Santoli with the Midday Word. Coming up, we're going to go to cruise control. Top rank analyst Matt Boss joins us with a surprising new call on one part of the market. Plus, his read on retail ahead of earnings halftime back right after this. And we are back on halftime. J.P. Morgan initiating coverage on the cruise line, saying the return to fundamentals is creating opportunity in that space. The firm putting an overweight rating on Royal Caribbean ahead of its earnings next week. And we got J.P. Morgan's Matt Boss joining us now to break down that call. Matt, great to see you. Kind of give us a sense. Why are you getting so excited about cruise ships right now? <laughs> Good to be back. Uh, look, I-, I think what you have, there's a number of components. I think the wave season is pointing to what we've been calling, which is the return to experience, the return to leisure. I think you're seeing it in the personal consumption data in terms of the goods moving back to experience, experiential. Uh, and I think cruise is right at the top of that. I think the other thing is value and convenience, as we've been calling out across all of consumer, fits perfectly here. You have a price gap today 
of crews relative to land-based resorts and airlines at 40 to 50 percent below. Pre-pandemic, that was 20 percent. So to me, the industry makes sense, and I think Royal is your best way to play it. All right, so this isn't just a gut feeling. You're also looking at credit card data um, for other travel and entertainment. When, it looks, when you look at that data, it's tracking 47% higher year over year. So you're seeing a lot of people are putting a cruise on their credit card. Absolutely. I think what you're seeing is, again, the consumer is shifting back to experiential as well as services. And what you're seeing is purchase intent. We actually have proprietary data from a firm 100X that, that actually tracks trailing three months. The purchase intent for cruise has actually accelerated 20 points relative to the beginning of the year. So I think you are seeing the pent up post pandemic, post restrictions, not only because of that value, but again, this has been the space that in my opinion, those restrictions had taken the most hit. Uh, and now with that lifted, I think you have a clear runway for opportunity in, in, the, uh, in the cruise line space. So we're positive on the space. I think Royal, the risk reward has the most upside to both the earnings and the multiple. Our price target has nearly 50% upside, but on the earnings opportunity combined with the historical multiple, I think this could be a double. All right, so just to be clear, this whole cruise line thing, this is a side hustle for you. Your main business, that's the retail business. So give us a sense. What are you expecting from retail earnings coming up next week? Can we read through anything from Amazon's results? Yeah, so we, we cover two spaces now. We cover the core uh, core retail discretionary as well as the, uh, the leisure category. I'd say the consumer as a whole, the theme that we're going to get in this earnings is resilience. I think the consumer is holding on. The employment scenario remains very strong. Wages continue to rise. The higher income consumer and the, uh, and the nest egg that they built during the pandemic, I think, is strong. So our focus is two things. One, value and convenience. That's where we like the off-price sector. So TJX would be at the top of that list, as well as Ross Stores Burlington. I think dollar stores and discounters also stand for that core value convenience. And then the second would be total addressable market. That's where we like the active and athletic space. So Lululemon, we think, has continued momentum uh, and trends remain very strong. And for self-help, I like the recovery that you're seeing from Nike. All right, there we go. Matt Boss, we got to leave the conversation there. Lululemon shares up about a third of a percent. Thank you for coming on. Enjoy the weekend. Great to All be right, back. Coming up next here on Halftime, we got our final trades. You don't want to miss these. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Halftime now for final trades. Rob, you're up first. Uh, Broadcom, key beneficiary of the AI arms race between Meta, Microsoft, Google. They all rely on Broadcom's chips used to drive efficiency in their data centers. Anastasia. SMH, semiconductor ETF. So uh, right there with you, Rob. But, you know, semis have done phenomenally year to date, except for recently. They're down 7%. Next week is a big one for semiconductor earnings. It's a risky trade. But I think given the big tech this week, uh, I'm sticking with semis for next week. Farmer Jim. Robin Anastasia, you guys are making me happy with those semi-picks, but my pick today is Visa. Uh, I still think this economy is not given enough credit for how resilient it is. It had a very good earnings report, and I think there's more spending ahead. All right, that's going to do it for us here on Halftime. Look at the markets moving a little bit to the upside while we did the show. That does it for the half. The exchange, it starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.